Hey, I just want to let you know that we've launched a way for you to support the show. If you want to hear about it, stick around and you'll get all the details or go to cyclingperformanceclub.com. There's a link in the show notes. Now, here's the show. If you haven't already listened to the last episode, it's part one and this episode is part two of our conversation with Dr. Toon Van Erp, performance scientist with Ineos Grenadiers. And it's about the limitations in training load measures like TSS. And when you consider a lot of the info comes from his research and he's presenting this stuff to the team, it's a great insight into how the top of the sport thinks about training load and imperfect measures. So go listen to that first. All right. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast. podcast where scientists, pro cyclists, and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance, science, and all things cycling. The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and cycling coach. And then there's me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. In this episode, we take Dr. Toon Van Erp's research a little further and get into the details of another retrospective study on how pro men and women cyclists actually train. And this episode is more than that, though. There are some direct comparisons between the training and racing demands of pro women and pro men, and this includes an insight into the numbers of a world tour power couple. The second half here is really concentrate on the two bits of how are pro cyclists actually training and then what are the demands during races. So for clarification, we've had a number of pros on the show and they have shared with us their specifics of how they train and how they race as individuals. And we'll continue to do that as long as we produce this podcast because it's interesting and uh, it's great to hear those stories from those athletes. However, that's not science. And what you've done is some science around this. So some of the researchers that have done retrospective studies around the training for pros, other than you and Dejo, uh, we already mentioned them, uh, Alejandro, Lucia, Paolo Manespa, Peter Leo. Um, Do you have anyone else to add to that list of people doing retrospective research with the high level athletes that you would recommend looking at their research training wise there's not so much eh? it's mostly the demands uh, in um, in racing mm-hmm. spanish group um, venezuela if i pronounce it correct but they also do a lot about race demands and how the demands change on altitude and with heat it's really interesting Mm-hmm. I, I sent uh, John Degenkop an email like one year ago, like, oh, I want to do something about training for the classics, but he, did, he didn't reply. So uh, <laughs> now, so tra- training has not so much. Which is unfortunate, right? We'd really like to know how this all looks. And so getting into the studies that you have here, like you said, that it's limited. And we have one paper from you and Dejo and Joss which I've pronounced all of those names wrong, I'm sure. But the title of that paper is Training Characteristics of Male and Female Professional Road Cyclists, a Four-Year Retrospective Analysis. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you um, tell me the purpose of the study and uh, give me the lowdown on the methods? 
So the purpose was mostly because first we did the paper about the demands in racing and compared men with women. And we saw like really big differences, which were kind of logic, but the men have longer races. So the intensity is lower. The girls have uh, shorter races. The intensity is higher, probably because the races are shorter, but also because the level differences in the girls was still really big when I wrote the paper. So we had girls that were working or studying, and then we had like proper professional girls. So for those lower level girls, the intensity is really fast high. And then we wanted, wanted to look if they then also train differently, but also describe the training in general, because that's not so much out there. The methods was kind of the same. Um, so we looked at uh, Edward Shrimp in this case, uh, the time spent in five different power zones in five different heart rate zones, and then compared them, the men with the, the women. And in general, you see that they spent really a lot of time in, in, the, in the power zone one, how we call it, and heart rate zone two and three. The men and, and, and the women, but you see that the women spent less time in the, in, the, in, the, in the low intensity zones and a little bit more in the high intensity zones. And I think it has to do with that girls will do a three hour ride and will do still six times five minutes intervals. While the men will do a five hour ride with six times five minutes interval. So you spend a lower time riding easy. And what to my opinion was interesting, this is the first paper I put in the individual uh, riders uh, zones in the, in the bar graphs the individual points and you see although we had the same training approach and the same vision in the team you see really big differences so for example you have three riders doing like 42 percent in in power zone one while we have one rider doing almost 70 percent in zone one so even you have even while we have the same vision about like polarized training uh, the differences are still really big yeah yeah among the different athletes yeah which there's maybe a little wiggle room in there with the the retrospective analysis and maybe these athletes maybe their um, yeah their fitness changes a lot over the course of the year that could play into like how the training load is calculated versus like how it really looks versus like what you would see in your training study here could be also areas where they live so climbing uphill it's still yeah. more difficult to stay in zone one and climbers like to do a little bit more yeah and harder and sprinters especially German sprinters want to do like. Mm-hmm. Easy Grundlage training. So I think it's these differences. (laughs) To get into the numbers of the actual differences of this study, which was published in the International Journal of Sports Physiology and Performance, let's start by looking at Table 1 called Volume and Intensity Training Descriptions of Men's and Women's Professional Cyclists. So we can pull numbers out here, like the average distance of a ride. And for the males versus the females, the male's average distance is 92 kilometers and the women's average is 64 kilometers. Also, average duration for their training sessions, 182 minutes for men and 145 minutes for women. And finally here, we've got a mean power output for these rides of 191 watts for the men and 138 watts for the women, which in watts per kilogram is 2.64 versus 2.30. And table two is like a good start of how these athletes actually train. I mean, you can't build 
a program off of it that would be exactly the same. You could you you'd actually be in a bad place if you used the, just the means here to train them. Um, yeah, you'd you'd be fired as a coach very quickly, I think. Yeah, but it does give you somewhere to look at. Like, oh, okay, well, at the end of the week, maybe my stuff should look like this a little bit. Table two lists absolute load and load metrics. For example, we can take TSS, which the averages are 115.5 TSS for men and 111 TSS for women, and turn those into a relative load of 1.23 TSS per kilometer for men and 1.56 TSS per kilometer for women, which starts to give you something to compare your training to. And to put these numbers in context of actual riders, Jason and Cyrus got to compare these with one half of a world tour power couple. When we were talking with Plappy, we had him look at these figures. And so he's dating another pro cyclist, Georgia, what's her name? Georgia Baker. Plappy, you are dating a world tour cyclist, right? Georgia Baker? Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah, so Toon and Dejo have this paper where they did a retrospective study of male and female professional road cyclists over a four-year period. So I'm just going to pull out some of the data that they have come up with here, and I want to see what your thoughts are on what these findings were. And I don't want to obviously try to get into a battle of the sexes here, mm-hmm. um, but my primary questions for you are around the findings for the males, but I, I think we can also... It'd be interesting to get your thoughts um, around Georgia and her training and how they would fall uh, into these findings. So this study found that the average distance, just the average, for the training rides were about 92 kilometers plus or minus 48 kilometers for the men. So how does that sound to you? Plus or minus 48. <laughs> uh, if you want to get your training peaks out, uh, feel free. Uh, so what we're saying, yeah. 92K. I don't think it'd be. It's going to be a bit over 30,000 a year. Yeah, I think for me that's that's bang on almost. Like I'd say you're doing 130, 130-ish a day when you're training and then you've got your Rico days. So I'd say 92 sounds almost bang on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think for... For Georgia, they'd be a bit similar. Okay, cool. Well, that's where this anecdote is going. Uh, I think that it's hard because we're completely different riders too. Like I'm doing stage racing and she's uh, focusing on the one days, but also a bit more on the track too. Um, she's a sprinter. But yeah, I'd say that's that's about right. Okay. So the women in the study, they're averaging 64 kilometers per session, plus or minus 38. So actually the training distances were a little bit lower uh, and the women for, than with the men. But for the duration of the rides for men, they are at 182 minutes or about three hours mm. for the average. So if that duration is correct, yeah. that's probably yeah, around hours. 21 hours a week yeah. for the men. And then mean power output was, and this is going to be obviously rider specific in terms of uh, size etc but the average power output was 191 watts plus or minus 32 pretty close for you then bang on bang on and then the mean power output in terms of watts per kilogram was 
2.64 plus or minus 0.45. And that's just the watts they were putting out during training. But the that might be... get my calculator out. <laughs> nah. What'd you say? 2 point what? 2.64. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's... Yeah, almost on it. Cool. And then the intensity factor that they have here is an average of 0.59. But normally people, I think, look at that slightly differently than how it's expressed here. No, I've never looked at my intensity factor, ever. Yeah, it's kind of a tricky measurement, actually. But anyhow, uh, then the average heart rate findings from this study were 125 BPM plus or minus 12. But again, that's going to be very individual specific uh, in terms of a measurement. Uh, but overall, it sounds like these measurements are pretty spot on for you. Yeah. I mean, this is this is you right here. Yeah. So congratulations. <laughs> you are training like a professional cyclist. Big surprise here. Um, so the interesting thing that came out of the study when they compared the men and the women Actually, the average kilometers and durations for women's training rides were less than the men. And this is probably due to, at least in part, lower power during their sessions as their mean power output for their training was 138 watts. And then the mean power for watts per kilogram was 2.3. But the interesting thing about this is, is if you look at the average intensity factor for the women. It's going to be higher for the women by heaps. That's my guess. I haven't read it, but that would be my guess for sure. Yes. The intensity factor was higher for the women. Yeah. It's 0.59 for the men and it's 0.66 for the women. And that was a significant difference. And yeah, definitely interesting. Yeah, I'd say I'd say from our household, because I, uh, I live with Alex Manley too, who's a pro. I'd say that's uh, very similar. Like I can easily train with Georgia a lot of days. Like if uh, we've got base or something, we're very similar. I think she's obviously a, quite a big power athlete and, and, and stronger and not, and she's not small. Like she's a one day classics rider and sprinter, but yeah, we can, we can train quite similarly together. And when we're doing uh, general endurance, not base, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, we're happy to, we're happy to ride together the whole time. Yeah. And yeah, it, she'll, I'll kick on for another half hour afterwards. Like it's, it's sort of exactly what you're saying, I guess. Um, yeah. And that type of rider she is, she's probably doing a bit more sprinting or some efforts mid-ride. But I think that comes down to less race days, to be honest. The women don't have the race days we have, so they need to be training at a higher intensity compared to us guys. Also, that reflects the intensity factor of women's racing. Yeah. Um, if you look at if you look at a women's one-week stage race, yeah, a women's one-week stage race, their IF will be a fair bit higher than... Uh, the equivalent for the men's and it's shorter duration um, and higher intensity mm. generally. And I think that's down to there's less control with their racing. Like they're pretty on it the whole time. Like even in their classics at the moment, a break's not really a break. Like it's, she's the split. You yeah. don't have a break going up the road and a team saying, yeah, let's control this and bring it back. Like yeah. when they're right, when as soon as that gun goes, it's the best riders in the world are attacking. Yeah. And I think that's something um, just, People, so many people from the outside don't realize how easy a lot of world tour races can be. Um, mm. Easy, easy to get to the point where the race starts. So it's funny, like talking to to people that haven't been there, but 
the sports directors always say, oh, the race is going to start here. And you think, yeah, well, like, I know it, it starts there. That's the start of the race, like kilometer zero. And they're like, no, this is, the race starts at an hour to go or the race starts at three hours to go on this climb. So, like, the the women don't seem to have that. They seem to race the whole time. Yeah. Whereas the men, you just have these long periods where you're not technically racing um, because there's a controlled break up the road. Yeah, the guys in the break are still working at a, a high intensity factor. The guy on the front of the peloton is working hard, but everyone else is just yeah in that in endurance intensity where they're not really working that hard, and their their race will start later. That would be the the difference between the two kinds of racing, I think. Yeah, oh, exactly. Like UAE, it's a great example of UAE. They're not going to show the coverage of the first four hours because we're doing 100 watts. Yeah. Um, and I guess with the guys, you're tuning in with 40, 50K to go max, really, aren't you? Whether yeah. I can watch Georgia or the others race with 90, 80, 90, 100K to go because they're racing. Like, yeah. They see one berg and you got Animate going up the road or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's just a big difference. Yeah. And the training reflects that, I think. It almost makes me wonder if there's a different portion of rider types in women's races versus men's races. For example, is there a higher portion of rollers, all-arounders, and sprinters in the women's field compared to the men's field where there might be more time trialists and climbers uh, type of profiles in the men's races? And this is also assuming that this data is accurate because this is a retrospective study of training data. And so when we have to go in there and determine intensity, they're doing things like finding the best 20 minute for the whole year to determine the training load and threshold. Well, we all know that the threshold is going to be changing over the course of the year. So you're going to have some inaccuracy there. And that inaccuracy could be problematic when it comes to findings in the study for training load and intensity values. But speaking to the training load numbers that came out of this study, you were talking about kilojoules of work, but here they found an average of 2,100 for the kilojoules of work plus plus or minus 1,200 kilojoules. So we see a large amount of variability when it comes to kilojoules of work performed per session mm-hmm. for the men. But the TSS was averaging at 115 plus or minus 75. But I think that might be... So I think that might be a little bit low, actually. No, see, I wouldn't because I, from the outside, I think a lot of people back home or that are not pros have a threshold set extremely low to what it should be or to what we set it in the world to it. Like people would probably be listening saying, oh, he's in the 120 CTL. Like that's pretty low. But for me, that's like training full gas. I think a lot of people have quite low thresholds that give them a higher a higher CTL value. Um, that's just from my experience in Oz and, and hearing what people's numbers are when they say their CTL is 150, 160. Like that's that's just my experience. But mm-hmm. uh, I'd say like, yeah, that 115, 120 is about right. Like on a four-hour solid day, I'm doing 200. Yeah. But on a five-and-a-half-hour base ride, I'm doing 130. Like yeah. mm-hmm. I think 115 is about right, to be honest. And I think it's worth noting that this study reported tss which is different than ctl but from the average tss you can get a pretty good estimate of the average ctl and i think the tss reported in the study might be artificially low because if they're using the highest 20 minute from the year 
to determine uh, FTP. Obviously, there's going to be portions of the year where your fitness and threshold are going to be lower in reality, which means for those portions of the year, TSS would not be accumulated as easily, uh, mm. if that makes sense. And I guess training versus race efforts, like for sure, I can do a high 20 minutes when I've trained and I'm fresh and going into a race compared to after a stage or in the middle of a tour. Like it can change a lot when you're doing your peak powers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. What's really interesting with this paper is if you look at the relative TSS per kilometers traveled, the men average about 1.23 units of TSS per kilometer, and the women average 1.56. Again, getting into the idea women are probably training at a higher intensity. However, something that's really interesting along with that, um, it seems that even though women are training at this higher intensity, the females, the RPE between the female and male groups was very similar. Mm. So that's actually something I mean, I have to mull over that for a little bit. But overall, um, when I was reading this paper, I was thinking, yeah, I wonder what Bloppy thinks about all these results and I wonder what his feedback would be. So um, I'm really glad that uh, you get into training numbers and things like that and we're able to uh, kind of discuss what your thoughts on it were. No, I'd say those values are very... I'd say those values are very similar to what I experienced, I guess, with me in Georgia. Nice, nice, awesome. Thanks for that. We first went through all of his numbers and said, how does this sound to you? And he's like, that's me, spot on. So like his training load and all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting too, like with the TSS, it's average over the session. Well, you can pretty much figure out where their CTL is then, right? If you, if you know the average TSS. Uh, per session you should have a good idea with the and that's about 115 120 which is where are you at right now cyrus <laughs> uh i'm at 126 yeah and plappy so that's about where plappy was as well yeah plappy's there but then you hear about these pros that are like at 150 and then you're like okay were they calculating ftp correctly and gets on that but yeah, they could have someone that's as high as that. Yeah, and I think we in the in the, in our team we weren't so focused on volume and doing a lot. That makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. In with Ineos because it's a GC mm-hmm. team. This is a sprinter's mm-hmm. team, and I see with 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 Ineos, which is a GC team, they are more focused on on the higher volumes. So I think it's also different a little bit with, within the teams and the the, the type of riders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, um, after Ploppy did the Olympics, his they increased his chronic training load. But well, what was it from eighty five ish up to the one twenty? So it's a big jump. Hey, he's also still pretty young, so that also makes mm-hmm. it. Yeah, definitely. But some some riders are doing crazy numbers, and you look at it like, oh, I don't know if this is the best, but they do it because probably they feel good with it, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's also individual. Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. Yeah, if you tell someone, I have a struggle with this with one of my athletes I was just talking to before we came on the podcast that saw that her CTL is set to drop uh, by eight points over the next week. And, like, yeah, she – and I said, well, yeah, like, 
it, that that's what I've I've got planned because these are the sessions I want you to do. But um, she said, oh, can I ride more? Because I just like riding. And then it's hard to say, well, no, you shouldn't ride more if that's what they like doing. And if if they're happy doing that, then that's fine. And then the same, same the other way around, you might have a German sprinter that doesn't want to be out doing 30-hour weeks. So if he's happy doing 18-hour weeks and that's sustainable and he's going to perform better when he's happy, then that's what you let them do as well. So it's, yeah. you can't always just be what you think should be the perfect amount. Yeah, it's it's tricky because I think riders often think too much that they know what's good for them. <laughs> There's a fine balance between... Yes. Yeah. Because riders in general, they think more, more is better. More is better. Yeah. That, that's in most of their minds. Yeah. And as a coach, I think... Depends how you manage it. <laughs> really, depends how you manage it. Yeah, yeah, and that's so... You have to be careful with, to my opinion, to always let the... I'm not a coach, but to let the athlete do what they want to do and feel good because do they actually feel good yeah. or is it their mind that says, I have to do more? Yeah. So it's it's a fine balance. There. Interesting anecdote is I do know from speaking to a few people and I've raced on a, a team with Dylan Van Baal as well back in the day, but he obviously won Paris-Roubaix. But uh, he is known and certainly when I was riding with him was known for being one to do the, the six-hour days as much as he can. He just loves doing massive volume. So uh, and yeah. then obviously in his head now and what some people might see is, oh, that's why he won Roubaix because he did all of this yeah. and like, this is why he won because he's the one that goes out and does these massive rides. But the whole idea of you doing this kind of research is to actually check, okay, is this something that we do need? And this is why we sort of need research here because otherwise all we have is anecdotes of, well, this guy does these big rides and he just won Roubaix, so everyone should do big rides. But we actually need some science science to back that up. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think it's really individual because, yeah, Dylan really, he does really high volumes. Yeah. And it's a risk that then, like everybody or in a team, the culture or the ID comes, ah, he wins a lot with high volume. So I also shoot to high yeah. volumes. But at the end, it's maybe good for 5 or 10%. And it fucks up the other 80%. <laughs> but it's the same as, as, as somebody that does really low volumes wins yeah. a big race. And everybody starts to do low volume. Yeah. It's like, oh, no, it's like, it's, it's really individual. And I think... That's the most important, and that's why I think it's good for athletes to have a coach that 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 can help them steer them in that direction, which is good for them, yeah. and not that they have something in their mind like, ah, oh, this athlete does high volumes. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I also have to do high volumes always. Yeah. And it's yeah. also good that a coach stands by his own, yeah, like vision or vision. It should be a vision that goes with those individual directions, but but keeps the boundaries. So in uh, with that individuality, are you, as part of your job now, I don't know if you can say this, it's okay if you can't, but are you trying to work out what works for specific riders? Will you look at an individual data set and say over the course of maybe their whole career if you have access and say, okay, it looks like this rider is more suited to this type of training than another rider might be? Yes, yeah, I'm trying to do that uh, mostly because I think we shouldn't, compare riders with other riders but we should compare a rider's shape or like you could compare the preparation of a rider that did five grand tours one one and was not good in two yeah and then compare what did he do different yeah. 
before the one where he was winning and the other two where he wasn't feeling good or something similar like that. I think that's better than comparing five riders who prepared for the for a grand yeah. tour but uh, i want to compare within the rider and see and and still it's difficult then because it's retrospective so i'm telling the coach okay this rider won a grand tour when he did 20 percent less load to three months up to the grand tour it doesn't mean that's the reason why you won the grand yeah. tour the only yeah. thing i can say yeah. is this is different yeah this happened this happened yeah. um i can't say this is the reason why he was in good shape or bad shape yeah. Or it's just okay. This was different. That's that's the only thing I yeah. can kind of. And it's it's say. tough because those analyses are just n equals one. It's one person, so you can't factor in too many variables there. And there's obviously a lot that goes on in preparation for those nah. races. And then yeah. also by the time you get lots of data for a rider, so say you've got a rider that's been riding for ten years and you have all of these different preparations they're going to respond completely differently as a 35-year-old to how they did to that as a 25-year-old. So it is, it's yeah. almost an impossible task. But again, it's, okay, there's problems here, there's limitations, but I have to look past those and use what I can use to, to help the athlete. Yeah, and I try to help the coach with, for example, with these analyzers and, and, and the rider says, I didn't do enough. I'm not ready. Like in one month and I need to do more and more. And, the, and the, with this graph, the coach could say, yeah, but look where you were performing well. You only did this. Yeah. So don't worry. You know, it's taking away these insecurities with the riders or the coach. Like, no, 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 you're on track. You did the same as when you won the Grand Tour or when you won this. Or, yeah. um, I think that's maybe the most important just to give them the tools to, yeah, to prepare. This topic in the conversation is fascinating to me because this part of Toon's job isn't focused so much on training. It's focused on the confidence that a rider needs to perform. This also extends to coaches and their confidence in what they're doing. So let's talk about why INEOS would bring in a sports scientist to look at previous training or trends to fill gaps in confidence. And from my experience, from what I've done in pro cycling and what I've seen others do, training prescription is kind of not as important as you may think. Pro cyclists do so much low intensity volume and specific training like high intensity intervals become such a small percentage of an overall program. So the impact of training is more about the individual response to the load and pros just respond to training so much better. Add to this, Performance in training is not a guaranteed indicator of performance in competition, meaning you don't always know what you're going to get come race day. So the mental game and factors like confidence become a big part of performance. And this is why comparing previous training blocks and performances can help. So say a rider doesn't feel like they're at a similar level of performance as previous years, and as Toon just mentioned, An example would be if a rider is coming into a certain race with a lower load than previous years, having some evidence to show the rider and the coach that they're still performing well is very useful in filling confidence gaps. And here's something that's not surprising about all of this and this approach. It builds on my point about training prescription at this level not being the driving factor in a pro's performance. If a sports scientist 
with 10 years of experience working for the highest budget world tour team can dissect a specific pro riders training retrospectively, but doesn't have the ability to tell them, do this again and you'll be on top form. It says a lot about the state of training science and shows we are not as far along in our collective knowledge about training prescription as you might think. Hey, Cyrus here. As Damien teased earlier, we have some very exciting news. We have a way to support us now, and what that means for you, the listener, is that we have a whole second podcast feed that has all kinds of stuff you don't find in the normal episodes. But more than anything, with your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best in cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community. I also just want to add, if you don't become a member, our normal content on the main show will remain free and unchanged. Or... If you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three, also by clicking the link in the description. Um, just to take it back for a second to the the other finding of this paper was with the differences between males and females. And I was just kind of curious on your thoughts about um, one of the things I was thinking about with the differences there is could the methods used in this study potentially exacerbate the training intensity differences between men and women? For example, you know, anchoring the zones uh, based on max values. Could there be physiological differences between men and women where those anchoring those uh, zones and using the same percentage of max might, you know, that we know there's individual differences and I am I'm not mistaken, I'll have to do a fact check on this, but I want to say like pr- critical power is higher in women than in men compared to their VO2 max. Mm. I'm not sure though. I'd have to double check that. But um, I am also not sure. But, but yeah, it could be that, yeah, it could be that it's slightly different uh, because of this. Uh, but there's so less out there about female mm-hmm. athletes that, yeah, publish publish something, please. <laughs> publish something, please. We'll, we'll sort through it. <laughs> and it's crazy. I submitted a study exactly the same as the men. And with the men, no reviewer would ask me what's the uh, the novelty of the study. And, and then to do it in women. And then I got, I got comments like, oh, but this is already known in men. Or why is this novel? I'm like, why is this novel? There's 50 to 100 papers out describing the demand of males and there is five about females and you're asking me why why it's novel and well the thing is is i would say i'll play the devil's advocate for that reviewer is tell me why it's novel you know what i mean um get into the specifics of why it would be novel uh, in terms of don't just leave the argument out there this is men this is women get a little bit into the nitty gritty of it of like, well, these are the physiological differences that we know between men and women, yada, yada, yada. And this is why the results might be different and go into it like that. It's, it's more that I never got that question. I think I never got it with the male papers. And now I got it twice with the female paper. I'm like, whoa. And, and, and it, in this case about why, why it could be, yeah, this, uh, this could be difficulty with the, or with the zones. Um, could be wrong. Oh, wrong. Could be a limitation. And then when I wrote this paper, it's already four, uh, only four mm-hmm. years ago, but the data is from 
12, 13, 14, 15. I think if you would do the same paper now or in five years, it would be totally different for the, for the women because they are making such big steps in uh, professionalizing the sports. We are in this paper, uh, in the, in this paper, there are girls that maybe mm-hmm. got like 500 euros a month to, to be a professional athlete, which now the, in a world tour, the minimum they have to get paid, is like 35,000 mm-hmm. or something. So it's totally different ball game now. Yeah. The, the characteristics of the women's racing is also changing a little in that because the, the Peloton, as you said, there's, there's more depth. There's more riders that are competitive. Um, it's becoming more similar to men's racing. It's definitely still a lot more aggressive from early on, but there is more control, yeah. which is why we see often lower intensity factors in the men's peloton. And then also the racing is becoming longer, like the distance is uh, longer this year, I think, than they ever have been across the board averages. So yeah. as we see the distances become longer, the intensity has to drop. There's only one... <laughs> you can't have the intensity stay the same as you increase the distance. So yeah, it'll be interesting if, if people do follow on yeah. work from what your work's done, if they're allowed to publish it, if it's novel enough in five or 10 years time, but it'd be interesting to see how that changes and whether they do become closer together. One other thought I had between the differences in training between the men and the women were um, because it was one team with males and females on it, is how often do the males and females train together? Because if the women are going out and training with the pro men, maybe they're training at a higher intensity because they're riding along at the same speed. No. There's one thought. They, just, ne- they never. Yeah. Yeah, no, they never train together. So according to Toon, the men and women from this team, the team that Toon took this data from, didn't train together. But is this true for men and women cyclists across the world tour? I coach a top-level female cyclist, and I know she trains with men all of the time, just not world tour men. And as we have already seen with our power couple, Luke Platt and Georgia Baker, this is not an absolute across-the-world tour. But also with outliers like Annemiek van Vluten, who trained with the men's version of her previous team, Mitchelton Scott. Specifically at their January training camp, an adventure-style camp, as they put it, because it's a point-to-point camp covering an average of 200 kilometers a day over the course of nine days. So we're talking about 1,800 kilometers in total with 30,000 meters of climbing. And even though she is an outlier, logging more kilometers on her Strava in 2019 than every male rider other than Egan Bernal from Team Ineos, we get an insight into what she and her male counterparts were thinking before and during the camp in her team's What It Takes YouTube series. And going into the camp, there was a little bit of fear and trepidation on both sides. First, from Van Vluten. I was a bit nervous, yes, to join because like, I, knew the, I know the difference between men and women is really big. Like, so usually like, I have troubles already to follow classic guys or sprinters. And then from the male team side, specifically from rider Chris Yule Jensen. One may fear that, you know, oh, woman's coming and, you know, we got to make sure that we, get, we drop her and this is a man's team and we don't want her to come in and get involved and this and that. So both sides have some interesting things to say. But from a numbers perspective, her performance manager at the time, Jean Bates, talks about a goal of completing 50 to 60% of the camp's workload and that would have been a great result. 
And this fits with the load numbers from Toon's paper. But as I said, Van Vluten is an outlier, so she ended up actually doing more than 100% because she got lost a couple of times. All the time out of my comfort zone. So that's also the horrible thing of it. Like they really, I'm in pain all the time. I'm all the time not riding in the tempo or the speed I want to ride. And this, riding in a group above the level you want to ride at, it's common. I'm sure all cyclists experience this at some point. Even in this camp, some male riders were doing it tougher than others. So it's no surprise Toon believes that this is also happening on women-only group rides as well. But one problem is that we had like two, three proper professionals or four, and they train together with the other girls. Mm. Or the other girls, like, you know, the, the, the younger girls. And so the younger girls with the lower FTPs will yeah. have to follow those older riders yeah. and more professional riders. So that will bring the intensity up in training of the, of the, the average of mm-hmm. the whole group. Because like maybe the top four riders are training the same as the male. So yeah, that's why it will be different where you ride yeah. it now. Because now you have a team of 10 girls that are training professional. I'm not saying those girls weren't professional, but mm-hmm. they made this low amount of money that they were studying next to it or working next to it. I, I, I don't mean it disrespectful to the girls in the, in the study, but, you know. Mm. So we looked at your stuff and you've already noted that there isn't a lot of these training studies out there. Um, is there any other findings that came from other training studies either in the past or since you've published this one that you're like, oh, this is really interesting. These are interesting findings about well, professional cyclists training. I think there's didn't come out any study after this. I'm not sure. I don't know if I'm going to publish it, but we, with, the, with the female cyclists, the data was so good that we had from a lot of them, we had the load of the whole season accurately. Um, there we saw that, mm-hmm. that the load the load or the volume, the duration was pretty much related to the level of the girls, which is kind of logic, which you train not to the sprint values, not to the five mm-hmm. and the 10 seconds, but from one minute, five minutes and 20 minutes was pretty, the relationship was pretty good. So how more, how more a girl trains, how higher the values are. <laughs> yeah, it makes That's sense, good. but I don't think <laughs> it makes sense. Male cycling because they all train, they all train, they're high, the high volumes. Mm-hmm. In terms of the demands of professional yeah. cycling races. So this is a topic that was in the outline to discuss with Dejo, but we didn't get to it because we dove pretty deep into a number of topics, or as you probably can tell from our discussion here. Fortunately, we can have this conversation with you, Tune, because you're also on the paper few of the papers yeah, with him yeah, yeah. since you've published on this topic with him and you guys have co-authored a number of the papers together. So to discuss the demands of professional cyclists during competition, we have highlighted three of your papers, um, intensity and load characteristics of professional road cycling, differences between men's and women's races, which carries on from our conversation we just had. Um, the Case report, load, intensity, and performance characteristics in multiple Grand Tours. And then uh, there's demands of professional cycling races, influence of race category, and result. And then you and uh, Dejo also put out a review uh, earlier last year, right? Yeah. yeah so right, kind of right. covering all yeah. of this. So it was, yeah, it was a good read. I remember I had a hard time remembering having 
remembering that one. Um, but actually, Marcel's Kittle's papers stick out more than that review because those were really interesting papers. So what are your general thoughts on you know, the demands of professional cycling races <laughs> and this research? Well, my general thoughts is hard. Um, the demands are high. And I think it's one of the... Sp- yeah, I think it's the sport with the highest demands, right? If you do, at least if you do a Grand Tour, one of those uh, monuments, like uh, they're crazy difficult. And then I think it's the only sport where you put in sprinters and uh, marathon runners in the same stage. And it makes the demands totally different. If you look, I did the, the Tom Dumoulin study and the Kittle study are kind of the same, the, the, the demand study in the Grand Tours. But you see that the demands are totally different for Marcel compared to Tom, which would be the same if you put uh, a sprinter, a 100-meter sprinter into a marathon, right? Um, so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I think th- these are my general thoughts. It's, th- it's really hard. It's a really hard spot with high demands, and then the demands really differ between the specialization types. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, definitely. You definitely see that in the, yeah. the Kittle papers. You definitely see that. So this first paper here, the intensity and load characteristics of professional road cycling differences between men's and women's races came out in 2020. Uh, and Dejo was first author on that year, second, and then Joss was last author. Can you tell us the purpose uh, of that study and give us a little bit of insight on the methods? Um, yeah, so that, that study is a, it, the same methods as the training study where we compare the men with the women, but, but then we, we only looked at the races. Mm-hmm. So we describe the differences in time spent in the zones and uh, how much TSS average race is and how much how long average race is like uh, yeah like these these kind of things. But it, the setup is I think exactly the same as the training study, but it just focuses on races. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So what were your findings? What were your novel findings that 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 the uh, <laughs> that the reviewers were in love with? I think uh, the, the, the novel <laughs> fan findings was that the women's races are shorter, so lower volume, lower load, but with a lot higher intensity, um, and that made us wondering if they were training yeah. differently. Interestingly, I see now that the RP is the same, so they are both fifteen point four in <laughs> in the race. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah. So that was actually interesting too, was the similarities yeah. in RPE. Yeah. So I think it's the, du- but the intensity differences, which makes the RPE higher in the men's races. In general, it was that. So mm-hmm. the races are less controlled with a higher intensity in the female cycling. And then even, even if you do it per kilometer, the TSS is a lot higher than in, in the, and, and, all load scores per kilometer are higher in the women's race. Yeah. But the watts per kilogram between the riders were only, there was like a very small difference between the males and females, but there would have been a higher intensity for the shorter races. Kind of got me thinking about the absolute power output for men versus women are going to be, is going to be much larger in men. And that has to do, probably has something to do with this, the appeasement of spectators however it seems maybe there's something to shortening the women's races so that they hit watts per keg intensities that would make them more appealing to the masses Uh, 
something any thoughts on that like that maybe the the uci has serendipitously kind of come up with the formula that makes it the women's races much more enjoyable to watch because they're more they have more intensity in them i think they are more enjoyable to watch because of because of the race it's more open and less controlled Mm -hmm. but i think it will will become when the peloton will will grow in like the difference within the peloton will be smaller i think the races will end up slightly the Mm -hmm. same with the with the female because now if the in this study like like i said was 12 13 14 15 when the big cannons would go in women's cycling there was no control so they could go whenever they wanted to go and bring the intensity up and when the, when the peloton will become stronger yeah it will be more controlled mm-hmm. so moving on into the other ones we have the case report of the load intensity and performance characteristics in multiple grand tours i think it was one of your favorite first papers yeah i, I thought you're gonna say my favorite but yeah it is nah. kind of my favorite is it awesome? <laughs> ah, it's really nice. And it's also nice. The master kit one's also nice. But I like the paper mostly because it has nothing to do with the demands. But I sh- ah, it has to do with the demands. But the f- it's the first paper that shows what you need to do to win a Grand Tour. But also the, what I really like is that I show that the power on the last climb shouldn't, to my opinion, shouldn't be used as saying your performance was good or bad. Because I show with the with that formula where I say it's where it's related to the power on the cl- on the last climb is really related to what happens before the last climb. Mm-hmm. So people that say, "Oh, you need to do six watts or five point five for twenty minutes or six point three for twenty minutes," it's it it all depends on what's happening before. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the first paper that that shows that it it's not that easy to compare times on climbs or power on climbs and then say this is a good or a bad performance you, you can mm-hmm. say it like yeah, that. you have to look at the whole picture and all the climbs that came before it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and i think too much people are too focused on the power curve and what they can push or what they pushed and like no it's not that simple you you can't you can't look at it like yeah that. and then not only that but like just you probably incorporated it in there as well but there's the fighting that you have to do to get to the climb that yeah we've talked about that with the pros on here um you know cyrus would say something like these people back home would say would look at what the watts per kick that the pros were doing like oh i could do that i can be a pro and it's like yeah you need to look at all of that data from that race before you make that claim buddy and and all the fighting that went on, they just get to the base of the hill before everybody. Yeah. And all how much yeah. that taxed them. This is something that I want to dig in with some numbers in a moment. As it links to the next part, we're going to just hold off for now. So a little practical take-home question uh, before I send you on your way. Um, in, in practice, in the real world, when you have uh, data for an individual race that's sitting in front of you from a rider, what are the key aspects that you concentrate um, for that data when you do your analysis? Well, it depends on the question <laughs> we, mm, we yeah, want to good, answer. That's a good answer. Um, it's fair. It's a fair answer. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So about performances, like I said, if you have a mountain stage, you have to look at what happened before the mountain and not only what the power they did on the mountain. I think that's important. So we have a data scientist we are working on that now 
And then normally we analyze races, to be honest, only when we have a specific question about a specific um, rider. Mm -hmm. So we think a rider isn't uh, riding that efficient in a peloton. We compare his kilojoules spent compared to the other riders, like those kind of things. But it is mostly it's a specific question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, for example, uh, can a rider win Milan Soremo or a certain race? And we look at, so the amount of kilojoules the rider did and then the power curve. Uh, I think that's, that's mostly what is used uh, nowadays. So you don't look at the power curve fresh, but you look at the power curve after 3,000 kilojoules or 4,000 kilojoules. When Tune's talking about looking at this type of data, we can do this type of analysis ourselves as a practical example. So let's take a look at the effort needed to be in a good position at the bottom of a climb and how that impacts the performance on that climb. We're going to do this by taking two 30-minute race performances and then looking at the 30 minutes before each performance. And these are taken from the same rider at top-level races. The first effort, which we'll call climbing performance number one, is a 30-minute effort at 6.0 watts per kilogram. And then the second climbing performance... Climbing performance number two is a 30-minute effort at 6.4 watts per kilogram. And if we take these numbers on their own, obviously 30 minutes at 6.4 watts per kilogram is the better performance. But if we look at the 30 minutes before these climbing performances, it tells a different story. And numbers don't always work in audio, so bear with me, and we will draw some conclusions from these after we've run through the numbers, but here are the numbers for the 30 minutes before climbing performance one. There was an intensity factor of 0.80, average power of 314 watts, which is 4.6 watts per kilogram. Then there's normalized power, 347 watts, 32 TSS, Newton meters by kilogram at 0.47 and 565 kilojoules. And that was before the 6 watts per kilogram. In the 30 minutes before climbing performance number two, the rider did an intensity factor of 0.52, average power of 199 watts, so 2.9 watts per kilogram, normalized power of 226 watts, 14 TSS, and newton meters per kilogram of 0.35 and 358 kilojoules. And that was before they did 6.4 watts per kilogram. And as I said, the numbers are a bit tricky without seeing them. But my conclusions after comparing these 30 minutes before these performances, the 6 watts per kilogram climbing performance number one really starts to look like a solid performance, even in comparison to the 6.4 watts per kilogram of performance two. Because when you have average watts per kilogram that are much higher in the 30 minutes before and an intensity factor of 0.8 versus 0.5, there has to be an impact on performance. Of course, it's hard to quantify exactly, but it's these types of analyses that Toon is trying to understand because it does tell a completely different story and it can direct everything from training to team strategy to how the rider even rides the race. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at things um yeah because it's one of those things when you're a sports scientist and you can think of a million different ways to analyze some data you're like okay which one do i pick yeah yeah and it's and that could be the same the, the same it could be the same issue for someone that doesn't have a lot of experience yeah which one of them these what analysis do i do here but you make a good answer right 
What's your question <laughs> for a start? I think that the data does we collect so much nowadays, and uh, the most difficult thing is to to get useful things about out of it, mm-hmm. and be careful. Like we talked about it, know the limitations and don't make conclusions like or, or over conclude things out of the data because it doesn't say everything. So we come back to limitations, but. What are the key takeaways we can use from this paper and from this episode? Is it as simple as men and women race and train differently? Is it as simple as following the numbers from this paper and you'll end up a pro? Nope, it's not. Unfortunately, it's all in the details and coaches are prescribing training based on other information, not some ideal distribution from a retroactive study. This is where, if we had a training study, we could use the information and advance the ideas around training with a specific intervention. But I don't know about you. I think it's fun to dig into this stuff and we can come away with some ideas on training. But to finish off here, we started off with how World Tour riders actually train, but we also got an insight into how a World Tour sports scientist thinks and works, especially the part about using what we have right now, the knowledge, the evidence, the measures, to make the best decisions possible, to get the best outcomes possible, while at the same time asking better questions to get better answers. Dr. Toon Van Erp is a performance scientist with Ineos Grenadiers. Toon, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your research and thoughts from working in the trenches. We hope to hear from you again on the show soon. And what about you? Did you learn something from this episode? Awesome. This is a listener-supported podcast, so we would be stoked if you could support us by becoming a member of the Cycling Performance Club and providing a monthly contribution. With your backing, we can continue our mission to deliver the best in cycling performance knowledge and practical advice to you and the greater cycling community. Click the link in the show notes to support us monthly, or if you prefer to make a one-off donation for now, you can buy us a coffee or three also by clicking the link in the description. And with that, thanks for listening.